I love fall. I love everything about fall. I love warmer days, but cool nights. I love wearing shorts with a sweatshirt. I have had to give up my sandals. I mean, I, I know you accuse me of thinking I'm from Kentucky and go barefoot all my life, but it's been 90 degrees since I've lived here. So like now that's cooler, I've put some toe shoes on and uh, I love football, even as a UK fan, I love football, right? I love chili and soups. Uh, I love watching the leaves change. Man, wasn't yesterday a beautiful day? If you can't love yesterday, you cannot love fall. Man, it's just awesome, right? One of the things I love about fall is that all three of the Heller kids have birthdays in the fall. We have two September birthdays, one November birthday. And so there's a lot of partying that happens around the Heller house in the fall. And it's fun to think about a year going by and, and to kind of mark some progress, to see how our kids are maturing, hopefully, uh, to see them like growing up and, and to see them, uh, see the prayers that we pray for our kids being answered. I, I love thinking about that. And it kind of gives me the same feeling as I read through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Not that we can mark progress so much, but it, it draws a picture of what it looks like to live life to the fullest. What it looks like to live this life that God intended us to have, a flourishing life as we've described it. And we want to pick up today right where we left off last week with Matthew 5, 48. It's kind of the pivotal verse of the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Feels like a showstopper. I mean, it feels like, wow, well, I mean, yes, we know that God is perfect, but there's no way that I am, right? There's no ever way I could be. I think Jesus knows that. I also think that's why Andrew last week kind of pointed out that maybe perfection is not the right English word to translate what Jesus is talking about. Maybe the better picture is this picture of wholeness or complete, because it speaks of a, a posture. It speaks of a state of the heart. It speaks of not arriving, but yearning toward something that is maybe bigger than us, beyond us. And we know that it's, it's gonna require God's help to get there. I think that's maybe a bigger picture of what it looks like to live this life to the fullest. This completeness, it, it has to do with our heart. It has to do with our motivation. And I wonder if it would change the, our perspective, would it change our behavior, even our actions, the state of a heart? If we began asking some, some foundational questions, maybe a filter for everything we do, these questions, like why do I do something? How am I doing it and who am I doing it for? Those three questions speak toward motivation. And I think that's what Jesus, the topic of his heart right now, as we look at the next words in the Sermon on the Mount. The last three weeks, we've looked at the law, the Old Testament law, and what Jesus has to say about murder and adultery and keeping our oaths and our relationships and, and anger. And, and as we looked at those, Jesus kind of is calling us to a more fuller picture of what it looks like to have this life to the fullest. And so we want to pick up in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse one. Listen to what Jesus says as he continues to unpack this idea of flourishing. He speaks to motivation when he says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your father in heaven. This introductory statement creates an expectation for the three practices he's going to go on and teach about. Now, these three practices are not exhaustive. They're not everything that a person needs to do to, to live a righteous life. But they are examples of what it looks like to live this flourishing life, to relate to our Heavenly Father, and especially our motivation as we do. Jesus addresses 
giving and praying and fasting. And he reminds us before he unpacks these three practices that we don't do these things for people. We do them for God. That we don't receive a reward from people, but we receive uh, our reward from God. Our audience is not people, it's God. I think you could summarize what Jesus has to say simply by saying that we should seek approval from God, not people. And that should be our filter as we think about the, the faith practices that we express. As you've already seen from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is interesting, uh, interested in us having a flourishing life, not a floundering life. So we need to view these three practices in any religious practice through the mind of Christ. We need to think about how we can practically live out his instructions and at all times evaluate our motivation as we do. So let's jump in and see what Jesus first has to say about the spiritual practice of giving. Look at Matthew chapter six, verse two. He says this. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on street corners to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give, give to the needy. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. I think Jesus says, give with generous humility. In other verses, translations, it says when you give your alms, and that was an expression used to describe giving, but not the tithes and offering giving, though Jesus' teaching could be applied to that type of giving. He's actually speaking about our concern and care for the needy or for the poor. And that was ingrained in the Jewish faith. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse, or 15, verse 11, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. You see, there was no government assistance in these days. The responsibility was placed for surely on the shoulders of the community to care for others, especially the community of faith. Jesus assumes his followers, his disciples would give and take care of the needy. That's why he says, when you give, not if you give. Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, wrote this. He says, it's better to take the risk of giving to the undeserving than the risk of neglecting the deserving. I think about this every time I see someone who's asking me for money. I think about this whenever somebody asks me, can I have a minute of your time? I think about this when somebody's asking me to do something because if I'm not careful, I kind of go into judge and jury. And I, I think... Is it, are they worthy of the dollars that they're asking for? Are they worthy of my time? Or, or are they, is this a worthy enough cause? And that's not what Jesus calls us to. He says, give generously. You're not the judge or jury, but in obedience, you're a conduit of my blessing in the lives of others. And so therefore, it should be a joy, a privilege, an honor to give. We have to remember Jesus' teaching here is that our giving is not just directed toward that person in need. It's actually directed toward our heavenly father. I think that's why in Matthew 25, Jesus, it tells a parable and he talks about when people give food to others who are hungry or or drink to those who are thirsty or, or clothing to those who are naked. Or when you go visit someone in prison, Jesus says, when you do any of those things, you're doing that to me. And I think that applies here when he talks about giving. When you give, remember, you're doing it for God. You're doing it to God. How you give matters. 
We should give in humility. We should give in secret, in private. We should announce it that we're giving to others. Jesus says, don't look for a name on the end of the pew because you've donated some money. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Don't use trumpets to announce it. Just do it. Just give humbly and generously. Don't be a hypocrite, Jesus says. Hypocrites, they give, but their attention is being drawn to themselves, not to God. Don't be a hypocrite, Jesus says. John Calvin says this, the theater of God is in the hidden corners. God sees, and he's the only one that matters. You have an audience of one when you give, and so give in generous humility. So let me ask you, why do you give? Do you give for what you can get out of it or what you can get from it? Maybe it's recognition. Maybe it's preference. Maybe because you give to someone or something, you think that entitles you to a larger opinion about something. Maybe it's permission. Well, I'm generous, so therefore I can do whatever I want. What if the Bible taught that it was for the reward that we were supposed to give? It'd be like the feeding of the 5,000. You're probably familiar for, of that moment. Jesus, he looks at a crowd of people gathered on another mountainside and he realizes they've been there a long time and they're hungry. Maybe you can relate right now. And so Jesus says to his disciples, hey, these people are hungry, you feed them. And I think the disciples are like, hey, you know, like I got nothing here. And Jesus, how am I supposed to feed this group of people? He says, well, what do you have? And they're like, uh, there's this little boy with a lunch. Maybe we could borrow his food. And so it's five loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes this lunch from the boy. He lifts it up to heaven and he prays. And then he says, pass this out to everybody. And I'm sure the disciples were like, uh, this is not going to go very far, right? Like you're going to have to really show up big, Jesus. And to their surprise, not just the 5,000 men that were there that day, but I think their wives and children, everybody was fed as much as they wanted, scripture says. And not just that, but it's every mom's dream come true. There are 12 baskets of leftovers available. We can serve it the next day. Jesus is just that good, right? But picture in this moment, I mean, Peter's kind of collecting the extras and there's a little tap on his shoulder and he looks down at the little boy. He's like, hey, hey, mister, about those loaves and fishes, uh, could I get a receipt for my taxes? Because uh, that's pretty important to me. I mean, is that why we give? I mean, currently we do receive a, a tax benefit for our generous contributions to the church or, or other faith-based or nonprofit organizations. But what if that went away? Would we still be generous? Is that why we give? We should give generously in humility to bless others and also to direct our attention, our focus, and our hearts on our Heavenly Father. Generosity leads to a flourishing life. And Jesus says our reward is dependent upon our motives and our heart. Remember, Jesus says not if you give, but when you give. So how do you and I give in this flourishing way? What are some practical steps we could take? Well, first of all, I'd encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to financially support local organizations that are meeting the needs of people right here in our community. And you don't have to go far to figure out which ones are trustworthy. We have trustworthy partnerships as a church that I think are, are worthy of your contribution, not just your money, but your time as well. The Potter's Wheel. Evansville Christian Life Center, Evansville Rescue Mission, Community One. Those are all partnerships that you can get engaged with and give to others through 
this vehicle, people who are headed in the same direction, who believe the same thing we do and are meeting tangible needs. Remember, Jesus' focus in this passage is, is for the poor. Second of all, I think that we could all grow in our generosity. Would you be described as a generous person? I think every follower of Jesus should be seen as somebody who is generous. And so Jesus says, pray to God and, and, and ask him to direct you in your generosity. I think the way we spend our money does communicate a lot about what's important to us and the state of our heart. The second most important question that Christy and I had to decide about when we were getting married was this, who was going to manage the money? The first question was, would you marry me? And she said yes to that. The second was, who's gonna handle the finances? And she wanted to know how many times I balanced my checkbook. Now, if you're under 30, let me explain. A check is a rectangle piece of paper. You write a dollar amount it, you sign it, and you give it to somebody. And when they cash it, the bank gives the money for that. If you're over 30, you know what I mean, right? And if you're over 30, you remember once a month, the bank sends you a packet of checks and you spend your time seeing if the money you wrote is actually in the bank. Well, when I said every month or two to my wife, she thought that that wasn't often enough. And so she volunteered to be the CFO of the Heller House. That's the second best decision that I ever made, is letting her manage our money. But I'll tell you, it comes with some limitations. I'm on an allowance every week. I have a set amount of money that I can spend. I don't buy anything without asking her first. She involves me on major purchases. That's really how it rolls. And so that are some of the limitations. But also it comes with some freedoms because in our relationship, Jesus says, don't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. I am certainly the left hand, okay? I could not tell you how much the church pays me. I couldn't tell you how much we owe for our house. I couldn't tell you the name of the insurance company that insures our cars or our home. I'm ignorant of those things. And I'm not recommending this for every married couple, but I'll tell you this, it, co it comes with some great freedom. I can be humble in our generosity because I really don't know just how generous we are. I do know that we tithe. I do know that we support missionaries who are our friends or people who are doing some great work around the world. I know we've supported numerous kids to get education, invest in their future and in their families. I know all those things. But it's because she's managing our money that allows me to be humble in this because I really don't know. And I don't think that's a bad practice. In fact, I would challenge all of us to figure out ways that we can be more generous and really not worry about just how much, but to live freedom and live in a flourishing mindset that reflects a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. Don't let the right, left hand know what the right hand is doing. The third thing I would encourage us in this area of giving is to keep our heart focused on this audience of one. Don't seek recognition. Don't leverage your permission or your preferences because you're generous, but instead seek approval from God. Give generously in humility, give with joy. I think it leads to this flourishing life that Jesus is describing. Well, the second activity that Jesus speaks about is the activity of prayer. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter six, now in verse five. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, 
go into your room, close the door and pray to the father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. I think Jesus is saying to pray with reverence and also forgiveness. Again, notice that Jesus says when you pray, not if you pray, because he recognizes that his followers should be people who pray. But he describes how you should pray. And he does that by addressing two different groups of people. The first group of people were the religious, but he calls them hypocrites. Because he says their motivation in prayer is to be seen by other people. They love to stand up and pray so that everybody could notice them. They love to pray on the street corners and draw attention to themselves. And Jesus says, that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about having an intimate connection with God, your father, and speaking to him and sharing your heart with him. Jesus is not against public prayer if done with the right heart. Several other translations say when you pray, go into a closet, close the door and pray in private. But Jesus is much more interested in why we pray than where. Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament theologian. He's been really helpful in unpacking the Sermon on the Mount for us. And listen to what he says. In the presence of God, we should give ourselves in utter devotion to communicate with our Father. Nothing else matters. The motive for prayer is reverence. It's connecting to our father. The second group of people that Jesus addresses are the pagans. He's probably talking to the Gentiles, the Romans. We know that because he says, don't keep on babbling and just talking all day long, thinking that that gets God's attention. It was common practice for the idolaters to name all the gods they could think of, hoping that one of them would show up and act in some way. Jesus says, you don't have to worry about that. You have one God to pray to. You have one father in heaven and he knows your needs even before you ask. So you don't have to beg him or manipulate him or even impress him. He's your father. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He's committed to providing for your needs. He's going to protect you. That's what he says to pray for. It's interesting that Jesus uh, wants us to pray in simplicity and sincerity. He says a lot of words don't really matter. And that reminds me of uh, an account of first Kings chapter 18. I'll let you read it this afternoon, but just in short, this is what happens. The prophet Elijah is a prophet of the one true God. And at the same time, there's 450 false prophets of this God, lowercase g, named Baal. And Elijah challenges them to like a God duel. He said, let's see who the real God is. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build two altars. We're going to put two animals on top, one on each. And then we'll pray to our God and see who shows up. You go first. I like his style, right? And so the prophets of Baal build their altar. They put their animal on top and they start praying. And they pray 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 all day and nothing happens. Again, I like Elijah's style. He kind of walks up to him and says, hey, what's wrong? Like, what's going on? Like, what's what's wrong with your God? And he kind of patronizes him a little bit. He says, maybe your God's asleep or maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's on vacation. He actually says, maybe your God is relieving himself and he's too busy to hear you. And then they start 
ramping it up. They start cutting themselves. They start doing all kinds of dances and rituals to awake their God's attention. Still nothing. So Elijah says, all right, your turn's over, my turn. He builds his altar. He puts the animal on top. And then he prays a simple prayer. God, would you show that you're the one true God and boom, something happens. I'm not gonna tell you what happens because then you wouldn't read 1 Kings 18. So go home this afternoon, read read 1 Kings 18. Now here's the deal, it's not wrong to pray in public, it's not wrong to pray long prayers. Jesus did both. We just need to remember who we are talking to when we pray. The next passage addresses that. Jesus gives some words about prayer that are probably some of the most famous words in the Bible. Both Christians and non-Christians have repeated these words at a ball game, at school, at some other uh, religious practice or service. The passage is known as the, the Lord's Prayer. Some know it as our Father. Some have called it the Disciples' Prayer. And these words have, have been recited and, 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 and given direction to our prayers for many, many years. Matthew chapter six, verse nine, Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. And the next words he gives are what considered the Lord's prayer. They're probably familiar to you. If not, they're on the screen, but I would encourage us to say these words together. Would you pray with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We'll stop right there. The last part of that prayer commonly uh, uttered is actually from Isaiah 41. But Jesus doesn't include those in his words. Not wrong to say. They're just not in the text today. Needless to say, we could spend six weeks or more unpacking all that Jesus wants to teach us about prayer. And as popular as these words are, there's actually a debate about, are they a prescription for prayer or are they a description for prayer? Are these words that just should be recited over and over and over? The early Christians probably prayed three times a day using the Lord's Prayer. Or are they a pattern for prayer? Well, I think they serve as a great model for prayer. There's nothing wrong with reciting it, but our focus should be on the one who Jesus directs our prayers toward, not just mindlessly repeating it from memory. Ethel Bruner says this, he says, the Lord's prayer stretches from the father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell. And in between are six brief petitions about everything important in life. It's really important that we see who God is in the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions have our hearts directed toward our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The other three petitions are about us, about the needs we have to give us our daily bread, to um, forgive us of our sins and to not lead us into temptation. Jesus' practice was to pray. He prayed before choosing his apostles, before casting out demons. He prayed prayed before feeding the 5,000. And he prayed directly to the Father. He never addressed prayers to himself or to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's important as we pray. Our prayers should be directed toward our Heavenly Father through the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying we should revere the name of God. We should hallow it. It should be hallowed. It should be honored. 
But he also speaks about surrender. He says, it's God's kingdom. He's in control. He has the authority. It's his will that matters, not ours. The Bible is very clear that God is not the father of every person. He is the creator of everything and everyone, but he's only the father to those who through the son have been adopted into his family. And that's a choice, a choice on his part and a choice on our part. His choice is that every one of us would know him as a son or daughter. But you and I make that choice when we surrender our lives to the lordship and the salvation that Jesus offers. And it's through Jesus we can have a relationship with our father. And that's really significant. Some people have used that the word Abba, which means father, could also mean daddy, kind of this casual relationship. And while I believe there's intimacy with our heavenly father, I don't think that we should let it to kind of be casual. One of the criticisms I think of us Protestants is that we're a little casual when we come into the presence of God. We often forget that he's not just our dad, he's an authority figure. It reminds me of a story Matt Volkman told me about his middle son, Addison. He said when Addison was a teenager, he liked to tease with his dad and, and call him Matt instead of dad. And he kind of laughed that off for a while and they kind of joked back and forth about it. But one day Matt decided to just kind of Take that to the next level. And he said, Addison, I'm going to let you choose how you would like to know me. Would you like to know me as Matt or would you like to know me as dad? But before you choose, let me just let you know that one of these is the one who feeds you, who provides a place for you to live and is paying for your college. And it's not the Matt, it's the dad. So Addison chose wisely. And I think that's kind of the perspective we need to have as we think about prayer. Remember who we're talking to. Remember, it's our heavenly father who has promised to meet our every need, who will protect us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, we should be alert and sober minded because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why we need to pray to God and in him only find our provision, our protection, our deliverance. Jesus knows that we need a father. And so he points our attention toward God. But there's something that's unique about Matthew's gospel that he includes in this moment. I don't think it's irrelevant. I think it's important. And so we can't skip over it because in the Lord's prayer, it says to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And Matthew follows that up in verse 16. It says this, for if you forgive other people when, you sin, when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Ouch, that's serious business. He's not joking. It feels very conditional and it should. That's what he's saying. That we should not consider God's forgiveness and forget forgiving others. They're related. That we can't have one without the other. And so that begs me to ask the question, like, have we taken that deliberate step that we talked about towards someone when we talked about anger and forgiveness a couple weeks ago? That person who came to our mind that we would rather forget or that we loathe, but that God is calling us to forgive. Have we taken any steps toward that reconciliation to somebody who's hurt us or somebody that we know we've hurt? What's our motivation for that? Well, it's because God has forgiven us. And because of that, we have the obligation 
the responsibility, the commandment to forgive someone else. And I know it's not easy. Just ask Jesus. Let's apply the teaching of Jesus on prayer. What would it look like to live this flourishing life as we think about this spiritual practice of prayer? Well, the first thing I would encourage you to do is find a dedicated time and place to pray. And I would encourage you to follow Jesus' instructions for that place to be private. It doesn't have to be a closet, but it should be a place where your heart and your mind can be focused on one thing, and that's a person, and that's our Heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus said, God's not impressed about where you pray or what you say, but the posture of your heart needs to be reverent. The second thing I would encourage us to do is remember who we're talking to. We should start every prayer in praise toward God to glorify his name and not forget that he is worthy of our praise. And he's the one who's God and he's the one that we have attention from. And we can boldly approach his throne of grace, but we shouldn't do it flippantly. We should do it in reverence and humility. And third, I would encourage us to take inventory in our relationships here on earth. They do impact our relationship with God, no matter what we think or want to avoid about it. So if we have bitterness in our heart towards someone else, we need to take care of business first and then express our heart to God. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says this, forgive others just as in Christ, God forgave you. So after Jesus teaches on giving and prayer, he moves to one, one final uh, spiritual practice, not an exhaustive list, but it's one that's probably not taught about much and it's probably more unfamiliar. It's the practice of fasting. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 16. When you fast, again, he doesn't say if, so he says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what it's done in secret will reward you. Jesus says, fast with righteous sincerity. If you've been with us through this Sermon on the Mount series, you know earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do your good deeds so that others will see and, and glorify your Father in heaven. Now he's saying, don't let them see. And it kind of feels a little uh, uh, conflicting, right? Or contradictory. Well, I think Jesus is addressing our motives, why we're fasting, who we're fasting for. And he reminds us, that our audience is our heavenly father. Through Jesus, we're provided righteousness. And it's not a self-righteousness like the religious leaders of the day, but sincere righteousness. Not like the hypocrites, but like true followers of Jesus. And that should permeate how we give, how we pray, and how we fast. Again, Jesus says when you fast, not if you fast. And so we recognize that fasting is maybe a little more unfamiliar. So let's dig in just a moment. The Greek word for fast is nisteo, which means to go without food. I mention that because in our day to day, it's kind of popular to, to abstain from certain things and call it fasting. We uh, abstain from television. We abstain from social media. We abstain from relationships. And while there's merit in these activities, Fasting has always clearly been related to food, especially since the ancient times. 
In the Old Testament, many fasts are recorded. They're always motivated out of sorrow for sin and repentance. The disciples were familiar with fasting because the religious leaders made it very obvious that they were fasting. They did it twice a week, usually Mondays and Thursdays. They would stop eating after dinner one evening and they would fast until the next evening. And they made it look miserable. They put stuff on their face. They just kind of walked around, kind of ho-hum-hum. They wanted everybody's attention. Jesus says, don't be like them. Unfortunately, it was theatrical for the Pharisees. I mean, just like John Calvin was saying, they were playing to the gallery when they fast. They directed their attention toward themselves instead of toward God. They made it a badge of honor rather than exercise in purity or even piety. Jesus was a person who fasted. Matthew chapter four records that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the significant is not in the days, it's in what happened as a result of Jesus fasting. The reward Jesus got for fasting was first of all, closeness to his father. And second of all, the ability to withstand the temptation of the devil. Would you be interested in either of those rewards? Would you like to have a, a deeper closeness with God? Would you like to be able to overcome Satan's temptations in your life? Then I would encourage the, the practice of fasting. It's no magical charm. It's not there to manipulate God. It's, we just learn from the Bible that it has power, even a mysterious power that reminds us it's not from us. It's not even from our actions, but it's from God. Fasting involves encountering God in a new way. And fasting should be motivated as seeking God, wanting more of him in our life, so much that we would abstain or go without other things to make room for him in our heart. Listen to what Macrina Whitaker says. She says this, fasting makes me vulnerable and it reminds me of my frailty. It leads me to remember that I'm not fed. If I'm not fed, I will die. Standing before God hungry, I suddenly know who I am. I'm the one who's poor, called to be rich in a way that the world does not understand. I'm the one who's empty, called to be filled with the fullness of God. I'm the one who's hungry, called to taste all the goodness that can be mine in Christ. Popular author David Platt says that when we fast, what we're saying is that we need God more than we need food. So with that said, I have one just practical action step for all of us to take today. And that's this. Try it. Try fasting. Not so other people would notice, but so that you could deepen your connection with God and help overcome the temptations of the devil. What it might look like would be for you one evening after dinner to not have popcorn or ice cream or any late night snack and go the whole next day without eating breakfast, without eating lunch until maybe you have breakfast for dinner. I mean, that's kind of what it's called, right? We love having breakfast for dinner at our house. So maybe you have break your fast by eating dinner the next evening. If I had a dollar for every time somebody says to me, like, I'd like to read the Bible more. I just don't have time or I'd like to pray more, but I don't have time. Or I'd like to do these things, but I never have time. Well, that's maybe where you might find some time. Instead of eating breakfast or lunch, maybe you could read your Bible. Maybe you could pray. Maybe you could pray for someone or with someone. Maybe you could serve someone. Maybe you could just lean in a little bit more to what the Holy Spirit might want to say to you. What he's trying to convey to you about how your identity is found in him. 
Maybe it'd be a time for you just to purify your heart and your mind as you make a sacrifice, as you go without. Some of you, I know, are not physically able to make a break in consuming food in this way. And so I would appoint you to uh, Daniel chapters one, two, and three. And in those verses, you'll see Daniel exercising a fast that wasn't an abstaining from food, just certain type of food. And what I mean by that is Daniel decided that instead of eating meat, he would eat vegetables. I want to encourage you, don't say, well, I'm just going to eat donuts for my fast. I'm going to skip everything else. That, that, that might not be the way to apply Jesus' words today. But I would encourage you, if you're not physically able to abstain from food, then make a sacrifice. Instead of eating um, meat, eat vegetables. Instead of drinking coffee or other uh, beverages, just drink water. That might be a way that you could encounter God this way. In closing, uh, Henry Cloud wrote a great book on leadership. It's called Integrity. And when I first saw the title, I thought, oh, it's gonna be kind of who you are when no one's looking. That's a good working definition of integrity. But as I read through the pages of this book, it actually had a fuller understanding of the word integrity. It was about wholeness. And Henry Klaus, he says, having a whole life is a life that's not divided. It's unified, it's unimpaired, it's intact. The whole thing is working well, Klaus says. It's uncorrupted. It's running on all cylinders, each part functioning as it's designed. In a world that seems to be falling apart around us. Wholeness catches people's attention and it makes a difference. It will stand out. And I think that's why Jesus is calling you and I to wholeness. And it's a work that transpires from the inside out. Jesus cares a lot about our motivation as we seek righteousness through obedience and following Jesus. We need to seek approval from God and not worry about people. We need to give with generous humility. We need to pray with reverence and forgiveness. We need to fast with righteous sincerity. These three spiritual practices should direct our eyes to our heavenly father because he's the one that really matters. It's him we're trying to please. It's also from him that we're made whole. And so as we do, what we experience is true life. Not a show, not a sham, but life to the fullest, the way God intended it to be. We flourish. Let's pray together. God, when we give, when we pray, when we fast, when we sing, when we serve, God, whatever we might do is an expression of our faith. We want it to be for you. We want it to be to you. We want it to be by you. God, we want everything in our life, our heart's devotion, our mind's attention, our hands, our feet, our heart, our words. God, everything about us, we want it to be directed toward your heart because you're our heavenly father. You created us. You have saved us. You have called us to this life, life to the fullest, God. And it's a gift. So God, the only thing we're doing is responding to you who've already given to us the one who's already promised to take care of our needs and has been faithful at that. And God, you're the one that our hearts desire more than anything. So God, may we be willing to give, to pray, to fast, to serve, to sing, to love in wholeness, God, so that the world would notice, not us. We don't do anything for our glory, God. We do them for your glory. So people would be drawn to you 
God, I pray that that would change our families. I pray that it would change our community. God, I pray it would change this church. God, I pray that it would change this world. God, all for your glory. I pray that through Christ's name. Amen.